You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. All right. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. You guys can open your Bibles. We'll be in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Ruth chapter 2. And so, as you're opening up there, I've been living the bachelor life the last few days. My wife left me, not permanently, thankfully. She just left me to go visit family in Minneapolis. So, oh, reverting back to like the bachelor ways. Not good. So, you can pray for me. Um, She comes home today, which is great. But um, that's personal update. But opening up today, we're going to look at today's text. And I'm super excited about what God's been doing in my heart, studying this out, and it's super excited for us. But it starts to answer this tension that I think many of us feel where we wish we could do more. But there's, there's a limitation, right, where it's like, man, I just, I need a little more money or a little more time in order to be able to do those things. Anybody else feel like, man, a little more money, a little more time, that'd be helpful. And I go to extremes. I, when I want to, like, do better and, and be able to do more. I don't think like, if I could just make a couple extra dollars, then I could probably do some good with it. Now, I'm going big. I'm like, if I could just win the Powerball, right? If I could win the Powerball, now granted, I don't play the Powerball, but if some reason like a ticket like blew through my truck window and I get the winning Powerball, I'm like, I bet I could do some good with that, right? If I just had a little more time or a little more money, then we could just really do some awesome things. And I think about that even just individually, but for us as a church, this desire I have for us as a church, as we're growing, but to be able to grow in terms of generosity, in terms of impact. We live in a a community that has 100,000 plus people. Not that many are in church this morning figuring out how they can pattern their life to follow Jesus. Think of 40,000 college students. We sent 10 overseas this summer And you figure out what those world changers can do with their college career. And so there's a desire to reach more college students, thousands of internationals, refugees. There's kids that are in low-income schools that could really use love. There's, There's tons of needs and just have this thing. It's like, man, I wish we could do more. I wish we could grow in our capacity. And today our text is going to begin to answer that question is, is how can we grow? How can we do more. And we're going to see in our narrative today a couple of individuals, one of whom Scripture even refers to as worthy, and they didn't have a winning Powerball ticket in order to accomplish it, right? And so we're going to see that through their trust in God, their hard work, and their care for others, God uses them to do some pretty amazing things. And so with your Bibles open, Ruth chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. And so It says this, now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That is a sweet name. God never blessed us with a son, but that would have probably been at the top of our list, Boaz. Um, And so Boaz is is referred to as this worthy man. And that, that in a time where things are pretty bleak, This idea of there being a worthy person. In fact, perhaps your translation uh, translates that to to, uh, being mighty or heroic. This is the same word that would have been used of David's 30 mighty men, his warriors and his army. That's the same word that they're using to describe Boaz. 
Okay? And again, that's the word described to use like the guys that withstood and like killed 300 people in like a single battle or a guy that went down in a snowy pit and killed a lion. It's like, yeah, that guy, these guys, Boaz, one of those worthy, heroic men. Now you got to contrast that, if you were with us last week, to Ruth chapter 1, Naomi's husband. I don't think that would have been the same descriptor of him. Because see, while Boaz, this worthy guy, when famine hit, he stayed in town. And to continue to push through in God's promised land that he had given his people. But Naomi's husband, when things got hard, he left the presence of God. He left this promised land in a desire to save his life. And ultimately, he lost it. Not just his life, but the lives of his sons too. And so that left behind three widowed women. Women, And Naomi said, okay, I'm going back home. I don't know. There's nothing for me here in Moab. And so I'm going back home. And her daughter-in-law, one of them, Ruth, said, well, I'm going with you. And so they are going back to Bethlehem, this country, this, this region within this promised land. And they're returning to this hometown of Naomi. And you think about it, even if Naomi's plot of land is still there, how long before these women could plant seed and grow their own food? They're in kind of a, a dire situation, and it's not looking good. And we see right away in verse 1, it's like, but there's a worthy man. There's this awesome, heroic guy out there. But they don't know that. <laughs> and so they're in a dire situation, which calls for desperate action. And so let's see, verse 2, what takes place here. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Okay, so gleaning. This is an Old Testament command. I think we have it in Leviticus on the screen. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. This was a command God gave to his people when they got in this land. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your uh, vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God gave them this command because God's concern is for the poor or for those traveling through the land. And he's saying, I want to be able to provide for them and so the way in which we're going to do that is don't go right up to the edge of your field and don't go back through your field and make sure you pick up everything you drop. Leave those. That way, if, if poor people or people sojourning through your country come along, they can gather that up and at least they can have something to eat. Now, they're going to have to work for it. I mean, gleaning, you think of what you're doing. You're picking up the scraps and you're trying to make a meal out of it, but at least it's better than the alternative of not having anything. In fact, seeing news story after news story about how to really engage a homeless population, poor and hungry amongst us, and they're discovering that rather than giving people a hand out and just giving them something without having them work for it, it's not helpful. And allowing them to work for it like this and provide a little bit, people have a sense of ownership and pride and find their way back on their feet quicker. And so, it's as if God knew best, right? 
when he gave this command. And so he's saying it's going to be hard work, pretty minimal returns, but it beats the alternative. And so Boaz, he shows concern like God, and he abides by this. You have to ask in that culture how many other farmers were still practicing this, right? Or were they going back through and saying, no, I am plucking up every last thing for myself. But Boaz, he leaves it out there. And Ruth, this foreigner, finds her way into his field. Now she is surrounded, you have to understand the context, she is surrounded by men who have long ago abandoned obedience to God. Meaning she is really susceptible, extremely vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And she could be raped while in this, going out and doing this. But nonetheless, she asked for permission to risk her life to go obtain gleanings. And she didn't blame God for her situation. She didn't blame others. And she certainly didn't just sit down and wait for God to open a door. With no promise of fruitful labor, no promise of security, Ruth takes a step in faith, trusting God. And look at how God meets her in this step of faith, verse 3. So she went out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a part of the field that belonged to Boaz, this heroic man who was of the clan of uh, Elimelech. Just happened to, right? That's one of those things where you say it's coincidence with a capital G, right? God is in this, right? It's, you, we as readers, and again, we're getting excited. We're like, Boaz's field? Boaz, you got to be kidding me, Ruth. Jackpot. She doesn't know that. This is just, she doesn't know who he is. She just tried to get some food. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Again, we see a different spirit about this guy. Listen to his concern he has for this foreigner who's gleaning in his field. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of his reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz, he takes notice of her. This Moabite, which would have been an enemy of the people of God, a people that were supposed to be driven from the land, but yet here she is, this foreigner, and here she is in his field. I mean, this would be, it's, it's in, for him to take notice of her. It's not as if like Bill Gates notices one of the, like, the least employees in his company or, or Steve Jobs or somebody like that, some CEO that took notice. But it's like somebody that's not even a part of their own company that is picking out like 
the scrap tin cans or something to take into the redemption center for a little bit of money. And he notices her. And it begins to, to beg the question, how can Boaz be so kind, so merciful to take notice? Where is this coming from? Journey with me on this one. See, not long before this, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, 400-some years. And God drew them out through Moses, parting the Red Sea, draws them out of slavery and into this promised land. Now, it wasn't going to be without its challenges. The inhabitants would certainly fight back, but, but God was with them, going before them. Joshua takes over, and God says, time to go in the land. And so Joshua has two spies sent out to scout out the land, and especially look into Jericho, this fortified city with walls that were tall and thick. And when they're there scouting it out, these spies get found out, and their mission gets found out. And so they hide, and they take refuge in the house of a prostitute. Rahab, and the king commanded Rahab to turn these men over. But instead of turning them over, Rahab, she hid them in her house. And she says, why? She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And thus she spared these spies' lives. And when they are going away, she says, now listen, as I have dealt kindly with you, Joshua 2.12, you also deal kindly with me and my family. And they said, we'll do it. And so when Israel came to Jericho, if you're familiar with the story, God had them on this marching routine where they march around the city. And then eventually, you know, after so many days, they march around, blow trumpets. And the walls of Jericho, these fortified walls, come down, making no mistake that God was going before them. And as for Rahab, her life was spared. And she goes from being a former prostitute in this foreigner to being adopted into God's people. And Rahab marries a godly man, and she worshiped the God she saw move in power, and she told her kids these stories, and she taught her kids to trust God and have mercy on each other. And how do I know that? Because Boaz is the son of Rahab. Boaz is the son of the prostitute Rahab. Matthew 1.5, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Rahab gives birth to Boaz. And no doubt that he was instilled, his mother's probably still walking around saying, Boaz, you know how we treat people. You know the goodness of God. Need I remind you, Boaz learned to trust God because he had a mom who trusted God in Rahab. Powerful stuff that is just hidden in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we'll get to that. But that in and of itself, man, God is good. And Boaz knows this firsthand. And so he trusts God. And so when you have a foreigner in a desperate situation, he's probably seeing his mom out there in the life of Ruth, saying, I know somebody that was like that. And so I don't think it took a whole lot for him to say, God, I trust that you can backfill a little bit of extra grain. 
I don't know where you're at this morning, but God knows, he sees, he hears, and it's to his glory to rewrite your broken story. If we would trust him, and Boaz experienced the love of God, therefore in times of famine, (laughs) famine? I watched God bring down walls. I think he can bring back the rain. He's not going to leave the presence of God because he knows that God is powerful, and he trusts that God can backfill a little bit of crop. And so the first thing, if we're going to grow our capacity as a church, if we're going to grow as individuals, it starts with a trust in God. That's where it, that it's going to flow from that, trusting God. And because of their trust in God, Ruth and Boaz can then get to work. And we talked about it at the end of Titus. It's an understanding that informs what actions we can take. And if you missed it, it was this idea, understanding your car needs oil and you're due for an oil change, that understanding doesn't change your oil. You still have to take action. Boaz understands the power of God. He still has to take action on that knowledge, as do we. And so Boaz chooses to be a blessing. He chooses to have that conversation with the workers and said, hey, why don't you go ahead and drop a little extra for her? Ruth still has to get to work. Listen, she, verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. So she was there first thing in the morning till evening. Then she went. You had to beat the, the, the wheat or the barley, beat the, the kernels out, gather it up, and she gathered about an ephah of barley, meaning some blessings, Anthem Church, are going to be received in sweat. They're not just handed to you. She had the knowledge, God is good, Boaz had that knowledge, but they still had to go and get to work. And she gets to work. When you talk about how much she gleaned that day, that amount was about three-fifths of a bushel, which you're like, okay, farm boy, you still lost me. Okay, (laughs) roughly 30 to 40 pounds of grain. A bushel is like a laundry basket, so three... uh, fifths the way full. So 30 to 40 pounds of grain she picked up from loose scraps. The heads of like a wheat or barley plant just in all those seeds added up and she had that much plus some leftover lunch. And and we see that it wasn't just that day in verse 23. She did this day in and day out until the barley and wheat harvest were done. Work hard. If we're going to grow in godliness, we have to be willing to work hard. Understanding God is in control, therefore we can take these steps of faith. Pastor Doug Wilson, Todd shared this with me this week. Undoubtedly with Jonathan and his armor bearer in mind, Pastor Doug said it like this. The man of God does not sit down in a cushy spot in order to say, let's see what God does. He pulls his sword from the scabbard and says, let's see what God does. That is faith. It's a faith that moves, that we can rest assurance on that God is good, and so therefore we can take action. Do you imagine how it would undermine all the hard work that Ruth put in if she's coming back into town with 30 to 35, 40 pounds of grain on her shoulder, and somebody's like, hmm, you're just so blessed. Man, that, you're just blessed. I, it's like... Yeah, but I also sweated like crazy to get this blessing. It was received in sweat. And I think that unknowingly, we undermine the hard work of others when we say otherwise. Meaning this, 
Somebody said, oh, you're just so good with names. I'm just not good with names. Some of you are smiling. Here, time out. Insight. Nobody's good at names. Nobody's naturally good at names. But through praying that God would help me remember names, writing them down, put, committing them to memory, using them, having good discipline, in other words, working hard at it, you can get good at names if you care to. And so when you say, well, I'm just, I'm just not good at that, you're undermining the effort that others have put in. There's a need. There's a need within our church for older people to be mentoring younger people. And some are doing that. Here's the thing. It's not because we had a sign up. It was because they pursued them. Pursuing that person already shows you care and starts that relationship off on the right foot. And so when you see people in these discipleship relationships, you're like, I just wish that would, you know, I wish I could have that. They had that through sweat getting after it, taking that initiative. And I just want to debunk this lie that when you look at the wisdom that you see in guys like Todd Van Vorses and Elder here, when you see the, the, the ministry that people are carrying, you're like, it just came about effortlessly without any initiative. Where do we get that understanding? Certainly not from Scripture. What we see here in Scripture is Ruth and Boaz, they are willing to sweat. They are willing to work. And it cost them something, but they're willing to. Again, we shared it a few weeks ago, but Ephesians 2, 8, because we start talking about, and this is going to be on the screen, we start talking about work, and you're like, wait, I thought it's not by works. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one boasts. Well, there, Christians, we don't have to work at anything. Mm -hmm. Next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Make it clear, we're not saved by works. But, it's, how did Todd say it is uh, when we were in our teacher's meeting? It's not by work, but we need to get to work. Does that make sense? That we're not saved by what it is we do. It's not about what we do. It's about what's been done. But in light of that understanding that it's been done, that he's defeated death, then we should be emboldened and empowered to actually get to work, to take these active steps. And again, they will be done in sweat. They will take work. And the thought that God prepared in advance for us as individuals, good work for us to do, that we would walk in them. They're available. But again, you're going to have to be willing to work, to sweat. And here's the thing, as it transitions in the text, doing the hard work, not that we could get more so that we can give more. He's saying, trust me, be willing to get to work as you see here so that you can provide for others. And so that's what we see. Truly godly people are going to provide for others. Now, here's the thing. We're going to see this in the text. But if you're going to provide for others, if you need this much, let's just take food. To be able to give, you have to have in addition to that, right? You have to have something extra if you want to be able to give. And so there's two ways to do that that I see it. One, you can either consume less 
and give the extra, or two, you can obtain more in order to give that extra. So either consume less or make more. That's how you're going to be able to give. We're going to see both in the text. Verse 15, so when Ruth, she rose to go glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. Just get this idea that, that Ruth is getting in there. She is working hard and she's aggressive right up where these guys are working. And he says in verse 16, and also pull out, uh, pull out some from the bundles for her to leave it, for her to glean and do not rebuke her. You understand what he's saying? He's like, you're reaping, you're getting these big like sheaves bundled up. Why don't you just go ahead and take a few and throw them on the ground so she has a little bit extra to glean. And she did, in verse 17 that we caught a glimpse of, she did that faithfully, got all this amount, and what did she do? She took it, in verse 18, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she had also uh, brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied from lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. See both. Boaz said, I'm going to consume a little less. He's taking out of his pockets at that point when he's throwing it on the ground. He's saying, I have plenty. I'm going to consume less so that Ruth and her mother-in-law can have some. Ruth, on the other hand, is saying, I'm going to go get more. Notice she did not get just enough for her to survive off of. 35, 40 pounds. I, wanted to buy like a bag of flour from Sam's Club is what they were going to do. She made that in a day. And then she's going to do that throughout all of harvest season? She's thinking ahead and she's thinking about more than herself. And so Ruth, she's saying, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get more than what it is I need. Both of them doing so so that they can give. And here's the reality. I know a number of people who are really generous. They just have nothing to give. They thought, well, if I only had more time, if I only had more money, then I would do it. And I'd say, examine yourself. Because the ability to give might come from consuming a little less and or making a little more. But let's talk about consuming a little less. We had a couple within our church that found themselves in debt. They wanted to give financially, and they weren't doing anything in the life of the church. Anything for our summer teams getting sent overseas. Mountain of debt, car payments, costly monthly expenses. Within a year, they had paid off their debt and found financial freedom. With no change in salary, but a change in mentality. They said, we're going to let our giving, we're going to do that. We're going to let our giving determine our living. And so they built a budget, they budgeted generosity... And they stopped giving the leftovers, and they said, we're going to do this. And then they cut back on their consumption. Again, it kills me. I see people that are more generous, but unable to act on that generosity through overconsumption or the inability to just budget that. And it's not just finances. It's time. People, oh, I just don't have enough time. Again, in teacher's meeting. This truth comes out, revolutionary, I know. We all have the same 24-hour day. That was news to me. 
thinking about that. We all have the same 24 hours, but some people are much more productive with their 24 hours than others. And so you can say, well, they have more money. That's how they're able to be more generous. I, I don't have that. So that can fluctuate. Time, we all have the same amount of time, but it's how we budget it, how we use it. And some say, I just don't have the time. One of the things I'll do every so often, I <laughs> invited somebody in on this exercise, I just fill out a timesheet, and I'll just say, where's my time going? In fact, Mike Easton, who was my first boss in ministry, he's, I think he's the one who introduced me. He's like, why don't you just write down every half hour what it is you're doing? <laughs> Revealing. And then we color code it. You know, Mike's assistant's guy, why don't you color code all the, the TV time and the, you know, the time you spend leisure and, and then your Bible reading time and you're looking at this page, you're like, I don't like what I see. We all had the same 24 hours, but, but what are you doing with it? Again, for me, I need to make a to-do list and say, this is what I'm going to be about. Even recently, a couple weeks ago, in preparation for this, knowing that I'm going to have to preach on this, felt this conviction about an app on my phone. And y'all, I didn't even know. I felt a little conviction, primarily, thank God for my wife, helping me feel that conviction deleted that, and all of a sudden, I had more time for reading. I had more time to do things just by deleting an app on my phone. Again, that was for me. I don't know for you, but if you feel like there's nothing left to give, would you please re-examine? I will happily, no judgment, or that couple that found that financial freedom, happily work through your budget with you. I was yeah, I want to, that's why we do connection groups, not to talk through budgets, but to have that level of accountability saying, where is it going? What is it that you're, you're doing? And so will you reexamine? Will you open your life up? Again, happy to set that up. Here's the thing, Galatians 6, and I don't have this on a slide, but the concept comes from Galatians 6 where he says, bear with one another their burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. But he says in Galatians 6 verse 4, but let each one test his own work for each one will have to bear his own load. And so it starts with us. And not like a, oh, I'm gonna help myself first situation, but I need to know what situation it is and what actually helps. It's, we use this a lot. It's this idea of when the oxygen mask, mask come down from the plane, they say, put yours on first. And so if you haven't managed your time and your budget, it's no wonder that you're having a hard time breathing with that heavy load on you and unable to help others. And again, the goal in godliness is to trust God to work hard so that we can bless others. That's what godly people do, and we see that in Boaz. And it's this understanding that it's a stewardship. Because if you ask Boaz, is that grain yours? Kind of. Kind of. I mean, it is grown on land that God graciously gave him with the sunshine and the rain that God graciously gave. And so he's more or less stewards of what God has given. And I know I'm hitting against some red-blooded Americans like, no, what I have is mine. I earn it. I got it. Yeah, with the health that God gave you, with the wisdom that he's given you, with the opportunity that God has given you. Everything that we have ultimately comes back to the Lord. And so to him be the glory. And so we are stewards. Because if we got what we earned, Anthem Church, 
If we got what we deserve, it would be hell. That's what we earn. That's what we deserve, Romans 6.23. And so by God's grace, he's done abundantly more than that. And so in light of that, we can work hard not to get more, but to give more and to be generous to others. Understanding that it originated with God. God has been generous with us. We can be generous to others. God has forgiven us. Therefore, Jesus said, we ought to be able to forgive others. God has been gracious with us. Be gracious to others. Patient with us. Patient to others. We are stewards, Anthem Church, of all that God has first done and shown to us. It's not originating in and of ourselves, but it's come from God first and foremost. And again, in this text, we see Ruth is working so hard for a food that is perishable. And not knowing what the future holds and how much more so us sitting here today who have been entrusted with something much weightier than wheat and barley. And that's why we got these bands. You can pick them out there, but it's Luke 10.2. Jesus said, pray for workers to head out in the harvest field because the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and he's not talking about wheat and barley. He's talking about souls, people in need of understanding the hope that is in Jesus, that there is life after life. And just inviting you, will you be an answer to that prayer that gets prayed at 10.02 a.m. every day by so many now across our network of churches? Will you be an answer to that prayer? It has killed me because I, I really do believe people are praying that prayer and then God's like, you, if you would be willing to work hard and step out in faith, you can help answer that prayer. By practically trusting him, working hard, and blessing others. And so I don't know what that means for you, but I'll throw out a few. Perhaps for some, it means fighting the urge to run out of service because you're kind of new and say, I'm going I'm to meet somebody new. Or if you've been around, instead of running to friends that you know, perhaps make a new one. Practice hospitality. Remember names. If you forgot their name during the whole meet and greet, could you say, hey, could I just apply this message? And could I get your name? I'm going to write it down. Start there. These are little steps, but they get us in the lives of other people. Perhaps for you, it's making a budget. Our family, we still use an envelope cash system in order to manage our money. And accounting for generosity, budgeting your time. Perhaps you've got a book that you know that, man, I should be reading that. Start reading that book and bring a friend in that process. Maybe it's joining a serve team, swinging by that welcome space and joining a serve team here at church. Probably, maybe it could be volunteering at your kid's school. Perhaps the Lord has laid something very specific on your heart. To which I'd say, yeah, do that. What is it? And here's the thing. Is there is joy in obedience. I want this not for for my sake or or for Anthem's sake, but I'm telling you, for your sake, I want you to be able to walk in obedience because the joy is ours. Because you see Naomi who said, hey, just call me bitter. She goes from being referred to as bitter to once she experienced this blessing, she just starts throwing out blessings. Bless that man. Praise God. And it's not just their joy, but for our joy. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. I'm saying it's to our joy. 
to be about the work of God and to take these steps of obedience and work hard. And again, I think about these three people that drove down from Ames, Iowa this morning. They had to leave at 5 o'clock this morning. So I don't know what time they're getting up, but they're leaving parking lot at 5.15 to drive here. And the purpose of them driving here is so they can talk about what God is doing globally and then meet with couples that are really thinking about going. They're going to meet with them all afternoon. And then finally, when that is done, they'll get back in the vehicle and drive back to Ames, Iowa, getting home late, late, late to their families. And I'm telling you, it's to their joy. I don't think they would want to be anywhere else because it is to their joy to walk in obedience to God. And if you've been on a a missions trip or you've stepped out in faith and done something like that, I'm telling you, there's this overwhelming joy because why? Because that's what God created you for. Not for yourself, but to walk in the pattern that Jesus Christ himself set. So we look at this, and I'm not saying Follow Ruth, follow Boaz, although if you did, you'd be closer to the Jesus, but I'm saying there would be one that would come hundreds of years later, born in this same town, of this genealogy, and Jesus Christ. Again, he provides the motivation to pursue godliness because he lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and then resurrected from the grave, giving us hope that there is life after life. And because of Jesus Christ, we can walk in obedience to this, that we can step out in faith, knowing that home is heaven, that God is good. We can step out in faith knowing his goodness. Work hard and seek to bless others. And we have communion tables set up around the corners of the auditorium here. And Anthem Church, this is genuinely your first step in application to this message today. First step in applying these truths that we read today. That we would remember the goodness that God has shown to us, that his body was broken, his blood was shed. And so you can make your way as the band comes up, make your way to one of these communion tables, break off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And again, it's it's an understanding that informs what action we can take. And so let communion, remembering what God has done, be the first step in applying this today, but not the last step. Amen? Can you do that? That this would be the first step, but not the last step for us as a church. As I believe it is to our joy and the joy of others to walk in obedience to God and have the opportunity to be used in these ways. And so I'm going to pray for us. And as the band plays, and then you guys can make your way to the communion table. But God, we do. We thank you that you are good. You are worthy. I just can't get over, Lord, the genealogy that that Rahab, her son Boaz, God, you are so good. To the least of these, you show concern, and certainly for us. And so, Lord, we do want to lean in, trust your goodness as we remember that you sent your son to redeem us from our sins and the hell that we deserve. And so, God, thank you for the hope we have in you. And just pray, Lord, for us now that you would stir up 
obedience to these truths in our hearts, that we'd be willing to receive that blessing in sweat as we go from here to make your name great. And so God, please, we ask that your kingdom would come, your will would be done here on earth, in our lives, as it is in heaven. So we just pray that and remember that as we take communion this morning.